there isn't enough targeted information and awareness surrounding financial literacy. I mean, when we look at the UK, for example, we've got one million people who are actually unbanked. And then you've got quite a large problem with regards to underbanking as well in such a developed country. And then when you take that and look at it on a global scale, two out of three amongst the global population are financially illiterate. And and that's a study by the World Bank. And then to further that, one in three in the UK is financially illiterate. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza Shah, your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of UpEffect, a crowdfunding platform resourcing organizations shaping a benevolent economy inspired by justice and ethics. If you're new to our work, over the last decade, our team has enjoyed spotlighting organizations at the forefront of advancing financial equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now deepening this work through our Reinvision Business podcast to dive deeper into what models are working and shaping the next economy. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll amplify models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. Really excited for today's conversation. Before we dive in, I want to say a special thank you to Zebra Genite for hosting today's conversation. Zebra Genite is a founder-led, cooperatively-owned movement creating the culture, capital, and community for the next economy. We're really proud founding members of this movement and are excited to discuss a subject that aligns with the work happening at Zebra Genite as well as Up Effects. And today's topic of discussion is how traditional economics gatekeeps access to financial literacy for women. Women tend to suffer from longer employment gaps, fewer economic opportunities, a larger domestic load, and lower earning potential. One way to tackle this is through equipping women with the knowledge and resources to become financially independent, whether it's through landing clients, earning income through the digital economy, upskilling, investing, and or saving. Today, we'll hear from Anissa Zaman, founder of Risk Communications, to discuss the current economic landscape and the steps that are needed to move this from concept to reality for women around the world. Anissa Zaman is an experienced financial literacy facilitator, specializing in the advancement of women's financial education and consulting ethical fintechs globally through her consultancy, Risk Communications. Anissa has worked with global organizations, including the World Economic Forum and the United Nations to increase financial awareness amongst various underserved groups and has been featured in Amalia, The Times and Financial Times. Welcome, Anissa. So wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Shiva. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, I can't wait to get stuck in. Uh, well, Anissa, to kick off today's conversation, can you please describe the series of events that led you to advance women's financial education? And where do we currently stand with regards to financial literacy, both in the UK, in the US, and then globally? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, definitely. Great question. Um, in terms of how I, how I got here, um, how can I explain? I mean, I guess what really spurred me was when I uh, went on a program at Oxford University, a leadership program. Um, and just to give a little bit of context, it was sort of a, a diverse group of young Muslims leading and um, uh, sort of paving the way in respective different sectors. 
Um, and I found that on one afternoon when we had a sort of sit down session with some key leaders and key change makers in Islamic finance, that in fact, a lot of us didn't know an awful lot about ethical or Islamic finance or even finance, generally speaking. Um, and at the time, my specialism uh, was in financial communications. Uh, so I was working with a whole host of different um, businesses from investment banks to retail banks, insurance, you name it. Um, so I kind of had quite a large understanding, um, quite in depth, really, regarding what the financial landscape looked like in the UK um, and indeed abroad in other various different markets. And so I kind of wanted to put that to use. Um, and that kind of spurred on me going into further education, going into understanding Islamic finance more specifically. My background's actually in economics and then Middle Eastern economics and politics. Um, and then going into sort of financial literacy, something that I'm particularly passionate about and that I saw a massive sort of gap in the market for was the fact that there isn't enough targeted information and awareness surrounding financial literacy. I mean, when we look at the UK, for example, we've got 1 million people who are um, actually unbanked. And then you've got quite a large problem with regards to underbanking as well in such a developed country. Um, and then when you take that and look at it on a global scale, two out of three um, amongst the global population are financially illiterate. Um, and, the, and that's a study by the World Bank. And then to further that, one in three in the UK is financially illiterate. Um, so there's just so, it's just sort of um, such a way that... And how would you define financial illiteracy? I personally would define financial illiteracy as not having enough awareness to make financially conscious decisions. Um, so it's not under, for example, it's not having the ability to understand the difference between a savings account um, and look, going into your overdraft, for example, and what that may mean and what the penalty may mean um, in incurring such a charge, what the difference is between a debit card and a credit card and how they both work. Um, looking at various different ways that you can educate yourself financially and being able to have access to that information easily. Those statistics are very alarming and um, it, it just paints a very brief picture of what the landscape currently looks like. What are some factors that you think are increasing the gender wealth gap? I think when it comes to the gender wealth gap, um, there's numerous different things. I think it's the the point at which we're learning about financial literacy in school. Um, sadly, there was recently a statistic um, carried out by Excess Mori, which, um, whereby 90% of people said that they knew, knew very little or actually knew nothing about finance at a school level age. Um, so I think it's access. I think when it comes to the gender wealth gap, it's also things like how to prioritize your career ladder and uh, the career ladder and in terms of what decisions you want to make. I think women have to make really big, bold decisions um, and some earlier on in their career, some perhaps later on in their career. Um, and then I think it's also looking at the sort of key statistics of 
for example, with Muslim women specifically, they're, they're facing the gap in terms of uh, gender, race, and then religion. So comparatively to their Christian male counterparts, they're actually about 22% underpaid um, in, when you compare these two groups. So I think those are certain key statistics to look at. And I think when we look at the reason why that is, um, as well as not having sort of access to information, a lot of that is uh, and sort of it being gatekept, a lot of it is quite exclusionary as well. And I think it's only until very, very recently during the pandemic, whereby sort of that level of gatekeeping, we've kind of let loose on the sh restraints a little bit. We've got the a little bit more understanding and awareness because we've been able to take the time out to think about things like retail investing, for example, or pensions, um, or even cryptocurrency. And I mean, I think when we look at it from the stance of, if I had the time, I'd be able to invest that time wisely um, into these sorts of facets. But I think living in a culture whereby it's constantly go, 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 it's kind of like you're you're on the hamster wheel, if you will. I'm assuming that impacts in terms of the economic opportunities that women have access to as well. What are some of these economic challenges? How do they look like? And what are women facing when they enter the workforce or when they just decide to you know, participate in the economy in a meaningful way? What are some challenges that are keeping them from participating? I think when we look at participation rates, I don't think necessarily it's a case of um, not lacking the knowledge or lacking even levels of education. I think the barriers really are to do with um, awareness on the other side, if anything, and looking at the skill set that they bring. I think when we look at things like diversity today, I don't think it's necessarily being challenged enough in terms of it looking more like a sort of checkbox, checkbox list, but rather looking at it in terms of diversity of thought, the skill set other people are able to bring as a result of their experiences. I think those sorts of things need to be challenged more. And I think it's far easier in some industries to let that go unchecked and be able to sort of aligned with people who have grown up in a similar environment or gone through a similar schooling system. Um, and as a result, you're missing out on really great talent. And it's because of that lack of diversity that that's really sort of stopping the economic sort of um, equality from taking place. And I understand that there are some products that are actually target, targeted specifically towards women. Have you seen that contribute to this wealth gap in any way? Yeah, definitely. I think when we look at the gender wealth gap as well, just to add on to that, we're seeing different habits and patterns emerge amongst men and women. And so when we look at the types of products that are targeted by and large, and there are many a different study that suggests such, product banking products more specifically tend to target women with regards to saving so you'll find more often than not women are really great at saving can squirrel away loads however when it comes to investing there's a massive gap in that and what we see is with men they are able to invest 
um, at a much earlier age. And therefore, when it comes to, for example, retirement, um, able to really cash out in a big way. So recently, there was, uh, the average man, for example, in the UK um, is able to retire on about £636,000, whereas in comparison to women, it's about 338000 So there's a massive gap in that, and that's something we definitely need to challenge. Um, and just lo- looking into some of the other statistics, when we look at sort of investment investment habits amongst women more specifically, even from sort of our own study at um, RISCOMS, 49% of British Muslims lack awareness with regards to investing. 33% didn't understand how investments, generally speaking, work. But 72% would be be interested in investing if they knew more. So really what the gap is telling us is if I knew more, I'd be more inclined to do so. And I think the other thing that I'd generally like to challenge as well is the idea that when we look at the kinds of products that are targeted towards women, there's a strong assumption that women are risk averse and therefore targeting savings products or targeting perhaps what is deemed to be less risky products. That's all well and good and that's great, but it's not really decreasing the gender wealth gap in such a way. And it's not because women are risk averse. It's just mainly because women are risk aware. If you were able to tell a woman, for example, okay, we're going to invest and this is what it's going to look like. And this is how to diversify a portfolio and walk them through something. They are far more inclined to make an investment. And in fact, generally speaking, women are far better at investing than men. So if women are more risk aware and they're better at investing than men based on these statistics that you've drawn on, um, what are the major blockers that um, keep women from parting with their money then? I think the major blockers with regards to what is pre- what's preventing men from, in- um, women rather, from investing is the lack or the lack of financial awareness um, and access to financial literacy. It is how products are generally targeted towards women. And I say that as somebody who has worked in PR and financial communication more specifically, and I've had to market products and I've seen the difference, the clear difference as well when it comes to investment products. Um, But by and large, it's the case of, I don't know what I don't know. If I don't have access to that information, I'm never going to be able to learn more. I'm never going to be able to do more because I don't know it's happening. I don't know it exists. And I think if we were able to target more products, if we, if we were able to get more knowledge out there, I think women would make uh, far more financial decisions on their own terms to help them gain better access, to decrease that gender wealth gap. Um and, and also for the betterment of society, generally speaking, in a study by uh, the World Economic Forum very recently, when it looked at financial inclusion, when they looked at women and their investment habits, by and large, they looked at the fact that women were more inclined to invest in lifestyle, invest in family as a result of investing financially speaking. 
So, and investing in community. Whereas in comparison to men who were investing was very much to do with financial growth, personal financial growth. Um, but we're a long way off. As a result of the pandemic, we're roughly 136 years away now from the gender pay gap closing. Um, so a lot of work needs to be done. And what does that work look like? So how do we go about creating the right financial uh, products that are targeted in a meaningful way towards women and are serving their needs um, and are keeping uh, or advancing their opportunities in the economy? Do you, are you able to describe what that could look like? Yeah, definitely. I think if I were to sit here and think about it, I think what women really care about is, adding value and that's a a fundamental across the board when we continue to look at various different nations um, and compare sort of the needs of women and what that looks like by and large women want to add value not just to their own personal lives but to the lives of their families to the lives of their friends to the lives of their communities so when targeting investments it needs to be far more holistic than if I invest in this fund, I'm going to make a return of 7.9% over the, a 10-year horizon, for example. It needs to have a deeper meaning in order for it to really challenge the way investments are seen. I think another thing is wealth can seem, or the accumulation of wealth rather, can seem quite daunting. Um, in, and I'm talking about this in a holistic sense with regards to financial illiteracy no matter who you are can seem daunting when you don't you already don't have enough you may be on the breadline the idea of investing seems like it's something that's way over there and to be fair it is way over there there needs to be so many other things to that need to take place before you decide to invest but the idea of just getting comfortable with money um if especially if it hasn't been taught either in your primary socialization at school or whatever that looks like is something that you just sort of need to get to grips with um but where to start i would say is being able to get financially literate and having more access to information in such a way that it's so it's relatable creating content that's relatable and understandable and you're able to really get to grips with things. And I think just sort of anecdotally from the content we create and such, it's really about helping women understand finance in a way that they can relate to on a personal level and taking case studies that they know about or have anecdotally heard about and putting it into practice and making it an immersive experience. Um, I think long gone are the days of sort of sitting there with your economics textbook or just sort of rifling through newspapers hoping for the best and and that you can apply things. I don't think that that's really going to be the content that people are looking for, particularly in a social media um, sort of age. I feel like even if I just think of it as as a woman myself, as a person of color, just in terms of the information that's made available, um, oftentimes it's not relevant to my day-to-day activities or how I wish to invest my capital back into society or the community. Um, and and I could totally see how, you know, creating more tailored content to specific needs that women are attending to on a daily basis is very much needed. And 
I don't learn much from textbooks. It's through practical implementation and 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 testing out things and trialing things. It's um, that tends to be the best way for me to kind of absorb what that you know what that could look like in terms of outcomes and results. Do you think um, organizations play a significant role here in creating more opportunities like these for women, or even academics? Academics. I my personal belief is that I think when we look at a lot of different financial organizations more specifically, and I'll take an industry and uh, more specifically, when we look at pensions, for example, I I well not even recently, a few months ago, I wrote an article for the Times regarding pensions and how COVID had shaped pensions and as an industry. and it that for many sort of old school organizations, they're still on a paper-based system, for example. Um, they and it's just not being able to keep with the times of what that looks like and, and how we're able to actually access financial um literacy as well. And I think one of the greatest gifts is fintech in the sense that it has democratized finance in a way that's made things a lot more accessible and it's made things a lot more interesting it's made things a lot more viable um but aside from that i i just think that when it comes to organizations they really need to sort of challenge the way that they're speaking about finance as well or speaking about literacy it's about getting not not just getting people excited about it but the end outcome being that people are able to take something away from whatever they're learning and i think that's where we go amiss when we're looking at different economic systems, the end goal looks very, very different. So when we're looking at our current system that we're working within and the current structures that are in place, if we're cur- if we're in an on-demand culture and we're always on the go and there's this assumption that at some point you're going to have to learn, learn by doing, that doesn't really award you that time to actually think about your actually thinking about your financial steps consciously so like the example of pensions I remember I interviewed somebody and he was saying I'd never thought about my pension at all it was just an assumption that there was auto enrollment and that was that um and even then when I interviewed uh, a lot of gen z's or gen z's um, many of whom said, we opted out. Why do we need a pension? We don't even know what a pension is because at said companies, for example, wherever they may be working across multiple different industries, there wasn't an emphasis in even understanding what a pension was. So whether it's schools, whether it's the financial sector as a whole, whether it's fintech, whether it's multiple different industries, with continuing to fail people but as I mentioned I think with the democratization of finance through fintechs I think things are slowly changing it's just there's numerous things to tackle all at once. Yeah of course and I understand that you're also creating opportunities at risk communications that addresses some of these gaps that currently exist in terms of how organizations are improving access to education around financial tools and um, opportunities available to their employees. 
what does the, your work at risk homes look like and what are your interactions with women and how are you working to address this gap uh, this is a great week to ask me this because all, all I've been doing this week is literally talking to women about finance so this is amazing um great timing Shiza. um so I think with regards to what my work entails a large predominant part of it is working with tech for good, namely fintech companies with regards to how they're communicating their products and what that looks like. So as I mentioned, I've worked uh, in financial communications beforehand um, and I've got a real passion for tech and tech for good and more specifically fintechs. Um, so that's really great because I'm, I'm basically coming from two ends with regards to looking at demand and supply. So when we're looking at products, we really need to think about the language we use. We need to think about the product and how it's marketed. We need to think about how we're getting that message across. We need to think about tone of voice. Um, and I think a lot of those things have traditionally gone amiss or haven't been thought out thoroughly enough. Uh, in the financial sector by and large because of this idea of targeted marketing with regards to gender so that's one and I think on the other side is with regards to financial literacy speaking to women all across the world with regards to finance their access to finance uh, or their access to literacy has been really eye-opening so talking to women for example in Pakistan and India and Bangladesh, uh, they have a total different experience to women, say, in the US, in Singapore and in the UK. Um, and what we're seeing is there's definitely sort of targeted products that are really catering for those markets. So when we look at, for example, Oran, with whom are who are based in Pakistan, they've created a fintech which is very closely um sort of aligned with the values women hold and I'm, I'm making a sweeping statement here generally speaking um, but using financial products like Roscas to invite women to think about finance with a tool that they're very comfortable with and then going on to building those block, uh, sort of stepping stones towards things like investing and such I think when we look at the sort of burst of uh, fintechs that came about in about 2020 um, during the pandemic in the UK more specifically so looking at the likes of sort of my Ahmed, Riz uh, and such it's really interesting in terms of how we're trying to become more inclusive um, and what that can look like for a whole host of different sort of people. But when we look, going back to more specifically how that links up with what I'm doing, looking at financial literacy and speaking to these women, a lot of women have just basically said to me throughout even the last week, but historically speaking, we didn't know that there was a space in which we were able to teach ourselves and teach ourselves comfortably in a, in a particular environment that fosters our values and creates a space uh, which accommodates for what we want and need. Um, and I think that's that really speaks volumes when we think about the sort of culture within the financial sector um, and how we, we need to dismantle that to make it more inclusive. Yeah, and in terms of just a response from the women that you've engaged in, what are, what are some of 
the key challenges that you feel they've been up against beyond what you've just described, just in terms of the one-to-one ex- uh, conversations or experiences that they've highlighted in your interactions? What are the key outcomes that um, actually help these women advance um, in the workforce or advance in their personal lives by participating in such content or in such education? Great question. I think, uh, great question. I think the main things uh, have largely been focused around things like having a, a so to speak, career break. So go, have, going on maternity leave, for example, what does that mean for me when I enter, re-enter the workforce? That's been quite a large conversation. And I remember, uh, anecdotally speaking, speaking to a lady who was about, I want to say, not, uh, eight months pregnant. And she she was interviewing for a new role. Uh, and this was during the pandemic. And she didn't want to sort of speak about the fact that or in, during her interviews that she was going off to have a baby because that was something that was really... Um, a daunting sort of conversation to have because she was really scared about being sort of outcast out of the sort of workforce as a result and that they wouldn't want to hire her necessarily. I think other conversations with regards to sort of um, beyond being more comfortable within that sort of set environment is also just having that access and that awareness. I mean, I, I personally um cover financial literacy regarding halal and ethical finance more specifically so i'm talking to women of a probably very specific niche in that but when we look at that in itself it's just it's not broad enough and there needs to be more information out there i think beyond sort of that it's also potentially some level of a confidence issue in raising issues with regards to for example um how to approach asking for a pay rise those are very difficult conversations for some some women to have um and that lot that largely lies in a confidence issue as opposed to an ability issue more often than not the women I'm speaking to are more than qualified for the role or going up the ladder, etc. But having that conversation in the first place or being able to provide a proof, if it were, as to why they should be promoted is a little bit more daunting. So I think those are certainly things that can add to it for sure. And I just think about it in terms of, you know, myself and my own experience, just in terms of you know, entering the workplace, not having enough knowledge on, you know, what are the financial um, opportunities that I could tap into whilst I'm engaging in a working environment, then um, moving on from an employment, um, uh, moving on from employment to self-employment, and then what the financial implications of that could look like. um, And what are the kind of tax implications of that? What are, you know, what are some governmental schemes that I could tap into? Um, as a woman, I don't have access to that information. And I'm pr- quite sure most um, entrepreneurs, whether it's male or female, they don't are, are not taught enough information when it comes to financial um, literacy. And they don't have access to, you know, all of these uh, tools that should be made available to everyone at all of these different stages of their life. I'm curious to understand whether you've seen much movement in this space towards advancing financial education outside of the work that you're doing at Riscoms. 
Um, yeah, definitely. I think there's definitely been a wide wider movement towards providing financial literacy and just to tap into something you had you just mentioned the jump between going from being employed to being self-employed and all of the financial decisions that come with that that's never mind thinking about mainstream understanding taxes understanding pensions that's never going to be, that's never been mentioned. It, and I think by and large, the idea of being an entrepreneur, um, it, I mean, you could look at it from two different sort of schools of thought. One is sort of all the systems we go through, schooling, university, etc. cetera, uh, if you choose to go to university, generally, or go, going down the apprentice sort of road, apprenticeship road, generally are built for you to be a really good worker, Right there's very little room in that that really teaches the idea of being an entrepreneur and what that looks like exactly and I say that just even anecdotally when I think back to when I was doing GCSE business studies for example and I was super like uh, by the point I had decided to do a GCSE in business I knew I wanted to run, run a business that was definitely something I had always been very passionate about um by the time I had picked up that textbook and learned more and just thought this is so exciting and I really like the idea of uh, sort of empowering myself to just go out there and do things but at the same time this it was very much taught as if you're from the opinion of being a worker as opposed to having that in entrepreneurial spirit and what that actually looks like um bar sort of uh, enterprise week so I think when it comes to, for example, looking at a pension as a self-employed person, looking at tax efficient ways um, and such, I think those are sort of, that's definitely at some point, hopefully during our lifetime, we'll be able to get there. But I think we're starting from a point at which financial literacy, as I mentioned earlier, 90% of people said that they didn't learn anything about finance when they were at school. Um, and that's a shocking statistic. And I think that's something that really needs to be challenged. So we definitely are going back to the to basics with that. But I think outside of, of my own sort of learnings and, um, and what that looks like with, um, regarding financial literacy, we're seeing a whole host of different sort of emerging talent on social media talking about finance. We're seeing products um, that are certainly catering to a diverse uh, range of customers on through fintechs um whether we're looking at sort of pensions companies whether we're, look, we're looking at investing particularly look, even if we were to isolate this and just look at investing more specifically we're finding okay we've got ethical fintechs when it comes to investing we've got halal fintechs we've got um sort of investment companies we've got looking at sort of different investment companies that comply with SDGs. So I think we're, we're getting there. We're getting better. We're going in the right direction. It's going to take a little while, but I am optimistic, certainly. One of the biggest challenges that you've also touched on is not only is there a lack of education within schools um, around uh, financial, um, you know, financial tools or um, financial opportunities, I think language and the vocabulary that's used to describe finance is inaccessible to most. And just trying to demystify that is 
something that most people don't have a, have had the time or resources for um and 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 it can be expensive to you know go about and finding an accountant or finding a tax advisor so i think it's very crucial that we start embedding financial literacy not just for women but for everyone um within the educational curriculum and uh you know wh- when we go about you know accelerating or incubating businesses that is probably one of the first things that we should be teaching early stage founders um so that they're prepared and equipped to go out in the marketplace and figure out how 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 do we how do we calculate margins how do we calculate um you know the the tax that we need to pay on on an annual basis and and all of the different kind of tax breaks that they may, might be able to benefit from so there's there's definitely a whole school of um education that needs to happen around this and i'm also curious to understand you know in terms of the wellness of a woman um you know a lot of people are investing in that idea and that concept that we need to take you know create resources and create space for women to feel like they are catered to in terms of the the various needs that they're attending to on a daily basis how do we embed financial literacy as a core tenet of the general wellness of a woman great question i think when it comes to looking at financial wellness and how we embed that within the holistic wellness of, of women more specifically i think if we're already sort of on the back foot with regards to the products that are targeted towards us with regards to how the current economic structure is built and looking at the lack of awareness and um access to financial literacy i think when we sort of reimagine things we just sort of need to think about where we where we're going with things and how how that's sort of how we can help women in in empowering themselves through financial literacy. So when we reimagine it and think about things, once again this is very closely connected to our current economic structure. Beyond looking at how capitalism can sort of feed us or how we're feeding into capitalism rather in order to survive, we need to t- sort of take a step back and look at the holistic sort of um overview of what is going to fuel us and what what can we do in order for that to occur and i think you know when we look at for example the health sector and looking at things like um you know there being retreats for example going to the gym or even just going you know going for a jog the idea that it's very much um embedded within sort of like government institutions um or looking at whether you're going to your gp or going to the nhs or the government's putting out a message that 30 minutes of exercise is what you need to do every day for example eating five fruit and veg every day is something that we recommend drinking 2 liters of water is something we need to do. what we need to do is get to a point where financial literacy is at a point where you need to learn about taxes because you are going to need to know this once you're at said age and this is how it's going to happen this is what it's going to look like so i think until we're at that place it's difficult and what we can do in order to bridge that together is you know creators such as sort of myself in being able to create courses create content to really encourage the idea of just even thinking just merely thinking about finance and how it plays such a large role in our lives um 
and all the various needs and wants and desires we have surround money by and large, that that's really the stepping stone, I think, in the right direction. And can you please speak to what some of these courses entail and the kind of content that you cover? Yeah, definitely. So um, actually, we've we've got a course coming up on Sunday, um, Finesse Your Finances. So we've built basically a six-week crash course to finance for um, to enable women to understand finance on a sort of very basic level, but taking them through the overarching themes of things like budgeting and saving and what that looks like, um, creating a zero-based um, savings fund, looking at things like um, an emergency fund, thinking about all these sorts of things, and then looking at, for example, halal investing, what would make an investment halal in the first place? How would I be able to, how am I able to screen a stock? Um, how do I diversify a portfolio? What would work for me at this point in my life? Looking at things like pensions, looking at things like um, sort of uh, the future of finance, generally speaking, and our attitude and our role and grounding ourselves within having a very inward, introspective look at where am I at now and where do I want to be? And sort of just to interlink this with actually wellness as itself, a lot of wellness, holistically speaking, is about sort of looking at yourself from an introspective level and thinking about the decisions you're making and are they healthy decisions? Are they decisions that are promoting the lifestyle you want to lead? Um, And then taking steps towards that. And I mean... It's not always the prettiest thing to do, uh, but sometimes the hard, the most difficult things are the most worthwhile things to do as well. And I think when we think about the longevity of our life at this moment in time, and we think about um, the kind of lifestyles we have and what we want to do and what will nourish us, I definitely believe having a sustainable financial model is something that can only really benefit us. Yeah, and you briefly touched on the concept of halal finance and ethical finance. Just for those that aren't aware of what halal means, are you able to elaborate on what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. Um, So when we look at halal finance, what, what we really mean is, is it compliant with Islamic laws and Islamic principles? So the sort of bread and butter underlying principles of uh not take accumulating or taking on interest for example or making sure that there is certainty in the contract you're signing there shouldn't be any sort of leeway with with regards to what you're what you're buying or what you're selling um and also the sort of the level of for example not having any speculation as well so things like derivatives wouldn't be allowed for example as we know them in the in our current economic system so we don't really engage in that so beyond that it's then looking at sort of the ethics and morals of a company it's looking at the debt and equity ratio of a company it's looking at um sort of how does this uh particular company benefit society as a whole what is it doing that's really helping our communities to flourish or our society um, to be a better version uh, of itself today, tomorrow, in the future. So those are all sort of things that that kind of play a part in what makes something halal, permissible, 
allowed Islamically. Um, and what I find from, from my own research as well is that with the women we speak to, of course, they've come to learn more about halal finance and engage in that. But that's the lifestyle they're drawn towards. They want something that adds value, not just to their own lives, but to the lives of others. And that's incredibly enriching. Um, and whether that may mean, for example, investing in a company that then invests in solar panels in India, for example, and what that looks like. So there being a cyclical uh, advantage to that investment and being able to share that with others. Thank you so much for just clarifying that. And and Douglas uh, Lachlan actually presented a question that touches on some of those values that you just described in terms of what Islamic finance um, embodies as a framework. Hi, everybody. Thank you for such an inspiring uh, session. It's been really, really fascinating and, and hits really close to my heart. As a ZU member, I've been struck by how the alignment between Islamic finances principles and the principles of mutual aid familiar to the cooperative community. And that to me is really exciting because it opens up a whole world of opportunities. I'm really interested in promoting financial literacy uh, among women of all faiths in West Africa. Um, it's, but it seems that the vast majority of financial literacy programs out there are motivated by either the interest of financial firms who are looking to expand their customer base or governments who are just looking to increase their tax base by moving people from the informal to the formal economy. So along that lines, uh, the lines of pro promoting entrepreneurship, do you know of any financial literacy resources out there that start more from the individual or community interests distinct from private enterprise or government interests? And thank you so much for this talk. Well, thank you so much for your question, Douglas. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you really enjoyed um, the chat thus far. Um, in terms of sort of knowing of resources and such, I actually uh, interviewed Charles Hoskinson, who's ex-Ethereum, and we had a great discussion actually about financial inclusion um, sort of in both East and West Africa. Um, so I, I believe there are organizations on the ground that are looking to improve the level of financial literacy. I'm not 110% uh, aware of said businesses, but I can definitely sort of get in touch um, and definitely pass on that information. But I do know of uh, sort of two or three organizations that look at um, providing a level of financial literacy um, to children in schools more, more specifically um, and actually looking at uh, young girls at, of like an adolescent age and really sort of bringing them through the understanding of financial literacy and what that means um, and sort of encompassing financial inclusion in such a way that helps them take, uh, take place, sorry, take part in the uh, economy. Thank you so much for coming on stage to ask that question. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Anissa, for just kind of providing an overview of what the economic landscape looks like for financial education, in particular for women. What are some key um, uh, resources that people could use, um, you know, on a global basis to get started with tapping into um, this space and, and, and connecting with, with the work that you're doing at RISCOMS? 
Um, I Well, great question. I was going to say, um, I think when we look at it from a global scale, um, I think looking at sort of organizations like the World Economic Forum or the World Bank, there is definitely sort of data out there just to get a little bit familiar with what the current sort of playing field is and what that looks like. And then from that position, therefore, sort of going on to um, looking at other different various organizations that are doing great work. So whether it's sort of rain check, whether we're looking at um, even my, we sort of, from my understanding, everyone's sort of got a different specialism depending on the kind of things you want to know about or invest, uh, sorry, invest your time in. So we've got um, from my own personal networks and, and, and of knowing them, we've got Girls Who Invest, which is very much centered around women um, and investing more specifically. The work I do at RISCOMS is sort of more centered around holistic financial literacy. So looking at things like pensions, um, investing, budgeting, um, mortgages, and things like that, that sort of encompass a more well-rounded lifestyle. Uh, of in sort of encompassing finance and what that looks like um but yeah i i think that there's definitely it's really exciting at this moment in time to consume financial literacy in such a way where you're able to gain access sort of at your fingertips um i do just as uh, douglas mentioned earlier uh i do believe that when we look at it from a formal perspective, definitely as diff various different products are targeted by financial institutions, there is an incentive in doing such. So it, it is a case of because of the economic structure we're working within that certain products are going to be targeted towards certain demographics for whatever reason. Um, and that means that perhaps the level of financial literacy may not always be there. Um, and that's definitely something we just need to push past and move towards. Um, somebody else I actually really enjoy, if I forget, is somebody called Bola Sol. Um, and she's amazing. She's very, very, she's great at what she does, honestly. And I think when we're looking at, once again, access to financial um, literacy, putting it in a language that people understand, that is ultimately the sort of key component in this, it needs to be relatable. It needs to be something we can understand. It needs to be approachable. It needs to be far less daunting. Um, and as if it's something that only certain sort of demographics are able to gain access to for whatever reason, it definitely needs to be democratized and it needs to be democratized now. That's such a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Anissa. Where can our listeners and um, attendees for, for today's event connect with you? Um, so on my Instagram page, at risk underscore comms, on my Twitter page, uh, same handle, at risk underscore comms, and of course, uh, our website, riskcoms.com. Uh, Wonderful, Anissa. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for joining us today, for taking time out of your day to engage in this very important topic. Um, and a final thank you to Annika Horn for overseeing the tech behind the scenes. We really appreciate it. And to Zebrajanite for hosting this conversation. We hope you all have a really wonderful day ahead. Take care. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. A special thank you to Rohan Singhal for editing this episode. 
to ensure you are notified of future conversations on impactful strategies and organizational practices, please subscribe or follow Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you enjoyed our episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your community so that others can learn about the incredible work that so many people are stewarding to build a better future for us all. You can connect with us and learn more about our work at www.theupperfect.com. Thanks again for listening.